0: All right, uh, welcome back everyone, uh, Pastor Lars here from Lord of Grace here in Marana, Arizona. Uh, you probably notice today my background is a little bit different. I'm in the fellowship hall. Uh, we just got the new floor put in, so if you want, if you stop by on Sunday you'll see our brand new, nice new tile. Um, the old tile looked a little bit kind of elementary school MPR uh, multi-purpose room. We've got this nice kind of fake wood vinyl, it's beautiful. Uh, but I'm here in the Fellowship Hall because we are installing our new live streaming equipment for the sanctuary in the sanctuary, and so uh, this is my backup room. I apologize for the horrid acoustics. This room echoes and echoes and all over the place. It's a giant room. It is what it is, but this will just be a one-week thing. Uh, then we'll be back to a, our old location last time. So, but welcome back. Uh, I'm going I'm, to... We're going to keep live streaming about being an unfundamentalist, which I'll give my usual disclaimer. Uh, I'm not the one who invented that term. I just like it, and I'm going to kind of share what it means to me, uh, and kind of how I see it, and kind of how I think that ELCA Lutherans see it. Uh, A little quick sort of review. Um, Last week, we were talking about prophets and priests, and I think that's important, that distinction, again, I'm going to come back to that um, distinction, because, again, speaking broad brush, I think that distinction uh, is a distinction in worldview that still exists today and that makes a difference to us. So, uh, we'll throw that up there online, my little mini graphic on the PowerPoint. But just as a quick refresher, uh, the priestly worldview, and this goes going back all the way into the Old Testament, even before the big stone temple was built, going back when the people of Israel were wandering and the temple was a giant tent Uh, The priests they were in charge of that temple. They were in charge of the animal sacrifices the rituals um, teaching uh, Teaching people the law and so they had this so that's what priests tend to be focused on laws ritual uh, Boundaries holy and unholy sacred and secular you touch this you don't do that touch that you eat this You don't eat that they're very concerned about things in their place right order structure discipline. That's kind of a priestly worldview. And again, they also love lists and uh, cataloging things, which is can be what makes the Old Testament really hard to read if you try to read it from beginning to end. Uh, You get these big chunks of lists, but it's very important to know who is where, what title did they have, all that kind of stuff. Well that mattered back then, but that's a priestly worldview, right? Um, The prophetic worldview is kind of a counter to the priestly worldview. Uh, The prophets, they generally were kind of lone individuals who got a calling from God to go out and speak to the authorities, who often were the priests or the king, and they would go out and they would speak to the authorities, uh, speak to the rich and the powerful, and they would point out to them where either their behavior was causing problems for others, causing oppression to others, or, where they had been tinkering with the laws and the systems and the structures of the day to oppress the poor. And so the prophets were kind of these voices of justice, voice of the oppressed, and they were the critics. And the prophets very often were very critical of the priests and the, in terms of animal sacrifice. Uh, you, got, you go to the first five books of the Bible, you get passage after passage after passage about how to do animal sacrifice. Get into the prophets, it's, they are not a hundred percent against it, but pretty close to it. Um, I don't want your sacrifices. I abhor your sacrifices. Uh, there's a theory out there. I'll throw it out for you. And the theory goes, kind of hard to prove, that uh, the actual books of the prophets, that most of them were written, as in put down on paper, before the laws were. That in the history of the evolution of things, the temple, there was a tabernacle, the giant tent, there was a temple, there were sacrifices, there were rituals. All those things existed, but they weren't put down on paper. Uh, they just sort of, they, they kind of more developed over time. And then the prophets came along and criticized those things. And it, one th- the theory goes that it was easier for the prophets to criticize the priests because there wasn't the textual documents to back up what the priests were doing. Um, and that the prophets had a completely different vision of what Judaism was than the priests did, and that the writing of the laws, which didn't happen until uh, the Babylonian exile, which would have been roughly 500 years after they were supposedly written down, um, that a lot of the laws were written down uh, almost as a reaction. Uh, And so you have that back and forth, right? But that's the part of the beauty of our faith, we have the laws, the order, the structure, the rituals. That's what most people are familiar with when they think of religion, right? It's a bunch of laws that tell you what to do. Um, and we forget about the other side with the prophets who are criticizing those laws. So anyways, there's that kind of background. Well, how, how what does it matter? Let me give you just a quick uh, uh, kind of memory from myself and my own uh, growing up as I sort of learned about uh, the value of laws and prophecy I think it can get real easy if you're maybe a more progressive Christian to look at those laws and rules and tend to see all of them as kind of oppressive and I think our culture does too but anyone who's ever grown up trying to actually manage something will learn right away that laws are very important um, I remember you know I was a camp counselor for several years and uh, you know I always looked at the program directors as these kind of you know, they're the ones that manage the camp staff they're not usually not the camp director the program director is in charge of basically making sure the counselors do their job, and I always used to drive me nuts all this safety protocol and you can't do this and you can't do that and policy policy and I was always the great critic who, uh, you know, uh, thought it was so oppressive all those policies. When I was in seminary, I got a summer job as a program director and discovered real quickly why. Uh, All the other ones did all those things they did. Because what happens when you think you're going to be the cool one who's going to not need all that order and structure and rules and regulations and policies and procedures is you discover you're trying to manage a bunch of college kids who don't think about things like safety and liability in the same way you do. You need that structure, right? Kids need that structure. When they go through their day, they need to know what's coming. They need to know what's next. Uh, there's There's a real important place for it it has a real value. Again, I think maybe us more progressive Christians tend to want to poo-poo structure, uh, but there's a real value to it. Um, I learned that. Uh, and I also learned that structure kind of forms you, right? Anyone goes into the army or any of the military branches learns this, right? The, the structure you go through in your training is, is not accidental. It is very intentionally designed to shape you, to form you, to transform you, to mold you, right? And the structures and the habits and the rituals of our lives, they form us. You know, whether you, and if you come from a home as a kid that's chaotic, uh, that will form you in one way. If you come from a home that's hyper-disciplined, it will form you in another way. Yes, there's our nature, and you can get into nature and nurture, but uh, it still forms us. To some extent, it will, uh, it will form us. And that's the idea behind these sort of structures and rituals, right? They form us in a certain way. They form us to be God's people. They form us to have a certain spirituality. They form us to have ethics. Um, It's hard to kind of do that, you know, if people are scattered or inconsistent. Um, But those things form us. Uh, In a traditional culture, those kind of things that form you would just be, they would be part of everybody everywhere would do them certain rituals, certain holidays, certain celebrations, and they would be backed up by either the state, if it was a state, or the tribe or the clan, whoever was the authority. And it would be backed up by religious beliefs. So religion, authority, family, all one big ball, all one structure, everybody does it, everybody follows it. It forms you in in your identity in a certain way. That's what we do, that's who we are you didn't, as a religious leader, have to run around and try to convince people to follow your rituals. You told them to follow your rituals, and if they didn't, there were consequences for that, right? Uh, But odds are, people probably didn't think of not following them because they didn't know anything else. That's how traditional things work. It's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, we do it with our own kids, right? Every one of us does. You know, how do we form them? what kind of values do we teach? Well, all that said, structure has its value, structure has its place. Um, But structures can be tilted and torqued for individual means. Let's look at Amos here. We'll just look at a prophet quick. Amos is kind of, uh, in the 60s, he was everyone's favorite prophet. Uh, And um, so, but here we go. Amos 2. Thus says the Lord... For three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and push the afflicted out of the way, father and son go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge and in the house of God they drink wine, bought with fines they imposed. Wow. A- a- Amos is kind of the guy. Uh, kind of an interesting background. He was a trimmer of sycamore trees and a sheep herder. Uh, and he was from the southern kingdom and God sent him into the northern kingdom. So he's, he's standing up there prophesying it's not even his area. Um, and so you get this laundry list of things they did wrong, right? Um, and what the one I kind of want to focus on the most here uh, is not the sexual morality part, but up at verse 6. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Took me a while to figure out what that was about, but it, what it really is is it's, it's debt slavery, and debt slavery was a very common practice back then. The prophets rail on it all the time, but the basic way it worked was when somebody would fall into hard times they would need some way to get by. And if you walk around uh, and don't have any shoes, you need shoes or your feet will get cut up. Even if you had the most calloused feet, it's a desert climate, they'll get chewed up. You have to have sandals. But if you have no money, how do you get sandals? Well, you could trade, if you have no money, your own labor. And so they'd say, sure, I'll give you a pair of sandals you know, I'll give you a pair of sandals, you, you, but you'll have to work for me for X number of days, months, years. So essentially, people would get put, brought into slavery uh, or just because they hit hard times. It's basically predatory lending. It's payday loans or uh, title loans or all those kind of things you see on the corner store. They all operate on the same principle. Somebody who doesn't have a lot of money hits hard times needs the money fast, so you sell it to them at, give them the loan they don't really have much choice but to get at an interest way beyond what you know they'll be able to pay, so then you can take their stuff, or back in Amos's time, you can sell them into slavery to pay it off, and if you're wealthy, this was a way to keep your plantation staffed with slaves without you having to go out and plunder the neighboring tribe to get slaves. You could enslave your own people this way, but say, look, I'm just helping them pay off their debts, right? So this is what they were doing, among a whole bunch of other things. This is what the prophet's complaining about. And this is an economic thing. This is a structural thing, right? The laws allowed people to be sold into debt slavery. They could have easily passed a law that says, no, you can't do it. Um, Or there's a limit, you know, you can work off for the pair of sandals, but only X number of days, that's it. But there was no incentive for the wealthy and the powerful to change a law that benefited them greatly, right? There was was nobody in the higher-ups in the northern kingdom saying, you know, that really isn't fair to them. I think we should limit how long we have debt slavery. And then all the plantation owners go, what, now I got to start paying people again? No way. So then God says, all right, Amos, go to the north, tell him who's boss, um, tell him what's going to happen. So this is what he does, right? But it's a systemic issue. It's a structural issue, right, um, that Amos is criticizing. Yes, he does get into the decadence of what's going on in the northern kingdom, and that is part of it, too. The prophets did seem to have a concern for sort of sexual decadence they get into and false worship, you know, bringing in other gods and temple prostitution, all these kind of things. That's all part of the package, but you can't ignore the structural system, right? That the prophets are criticizing, they're criticizing the law and how it's been implemented. Um, Let me give you another example here, Matthew 12. Uh, I picked this one to talk about sort of laws and structures, because one thing the prophets do get into a lot is... Uh, the Sabbath. They rail about the Sabbath laws over and over and over and God's wrath, God tends to be wrathful a lot in the prophets, um, is going to pour out wrath because people aren't following the Sabbath. Why aren't they following the Sabbath? Well, the Sabbath rule really was developed to protect the laborers. Uh, You know, the whole idea of a weekend is kind of a modern thing. Uh, Back then, they'd just work you every day until you died. Uh, But with a Sabbath law, it's God essentially stepping in saying, no, nobody gets to work for a day. But the truth is, the landowners didn't work most days anyways. They just sat on their couches and collected the money. Um, It was the laborers who worked. So by mandating a Sabbath, it protects the workers, right? So normally, the prophets are all about the Sabbath. But any law that exists can be taken to an extreme, of absurdity where you know it no longer serves the purpose it was designed for right so that's we'll go to matthew 12 here's jesus here's jesus running into sabbath laws um and he says at that time jesus went through the grain fields on the sabbath the disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain to eat when the pharisees saw this they said to him look Your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him or his companions to eat, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and yet are guiltless? I tell you something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. All right, this is a great, um, this is a great sort of passage. What's going on in the background? In the law, uh, people who had fields of grain were required after the harvest to leave sort of the leftovers, the so stuff that didn't get. Uh, that didn't get hacked, they were required by law to leave that for the poor. And so the poor would go through the fields and pick the grain. Um, That was actually perfectly legal, what they were doing. Um, Yes, they weren't supposed to do it on the Sabbath, but guess what? People need to eat on the Sabbath. They're still hungry, even on the Sabbath. So Jesus and his disciples start going and picking grain. Um, And that's when the Pharisees jump out and go, Hey, what are you doing? You're working on the Sabbath and jesus's reply is you know he he immediately cites case precedent of people breaking the sabbath um supposedly david uh, way back when king david uh, went into the tabernacle and took the holy bread the bread sitting right in front of the altar and ate that because him and his troops were hungry and he's like well you you were okay with david doing it the truth is all the priests go into the Sabbath every time and work on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is their day of work. I know this. I'm a pastor, right? The Sabbath is your day of work, and that was okay. But now you're all worried about this, eh, you know. And the whole, and so then David, and so then Jesus quotes the prophet. I believe it's Malachi. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Right? That that's the view of the prophets. Mercy, not sacrifice. Um, that what God really wants you to do is to care about the poor and the hungry and that's more important than doing sacrifices Um, sacrifices in general jesus doesn't say never do a sacrifice but his beef is the same beef that amos and the other prophets had which is they were using good religious ritual as a way to avoid changing their personal behavior and looking in at themselves so they would behave treat their workers like crap all week long, and then come in and do a sacrifice. And, oh, I did my sacrifice right. God's happy with me. And the prophet saying, God's kind of sick about, God is sick and tired of you, you know, sacrificing sheep. Why don't you pay your workers more? Ooh, you know. Um, but this is what Jesus is doing. And he's very much in the tradition of the prophets, which is kind of my theme for today, right? Jesus as the prophet. You have, And one way to understand Jesus well is, to see that so much of what he's doing is the same thing that's been done by the Old Testament prophets before him for hundreds of years. And he tends to quote from the prophets far more than he quotes from the law, uh, that Jesus does not go and give a whole bunch of new laws. Uh, In fact, I mean, he says he's not going to throw out the old ones. He does. He's not a big lawgiver. He doesn't add more laws on most things. He's not, that's not really who he is. He's much more a prophet. He's much more the person who criticizes the tradition, who calls him out on things. Um, And so, you know, this is who Jesus is. Uh, It doesn't mean that he's advocating for anarchy, just much more of a law that's applied in a compassionate way, uh, a law that can make exceptions for things. I remember I was uh, at one of these sort of interfaith clergy gatherings, and uh, it was my turn to lead the sort of text study. And so we would look at different scriptural texts from the different traditions. And uh, I pulled out one. It wasn't this one about the grain. It was another Sabbath story with Jesus about uh, healing. So he healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. And I kind of wanted to know how the rabbi would respond to that. Um, And the rabbi just kind of thought it was all silly. He's like, Well, you don't need to do that. First of all, you don't need to heal his hand on the Sabbath. You could wait a day. It's not an emergency. But we have law. The law allows for all sorts of emergencies. And you can work on the Sabbath. You can be a Jewish ER doctor and work on the Sabbath. You don't have to leave people by the road on the Sabbath. We have these exceptions. We've always had this. It's really unnecessary. You know, Um, I get it. Uh, And that probably was more how the normal Judaism was, even in Jesus' day. But when you're trying to play gotcha with someone, then you start nitpicking the law, right? So the rabbi didn't think that, you know, he didn't see any need that the law needed to be that rigidly enforced. Um, So that was was kind of a cool little interpretation on that, that he had, um, that he didn't view the law as so rigid. I do think the Pharisees who, the particular Pharisees who were criticizing Jesus were they were looking to get him, right? Um, So that's why they took everything extra hard. Well, so this is what we have. Uh, We have a Jesus who is in many ways in the tradition of the prophets. He's bending the rules around uh, in ways that are compassionate. He is sort of challenging through his actions the religious authorities. He is calling into question the systems uh, and the structures that are being employed that keep people poor and that keep people hungry. And so he's doing some of the Jesus is doing some of these different things. But how many of us would say that that's the common impression of Jesus that we have? I honestly said if I went out into the popular culture and said who's Jesus, to most people he's a judgmental law-giving wrathful punisher who watches what you do in your bedroom and is looking for dirt to send you to hell. And Somehow Jesus, the critic of authority, becomes Jesus, the enforcer of authority. Um, and Jesus becomes the authority. Well, why, why is that? I have a theory. Again, this is, this is my live stream, so I'm just going to give you my theory. Um, my theory is that we live, we live in a secular culture, and our culture is becoming more and more and more secular, more pluralistic, more multi religion, more people know religion. And the old world, at least that people think of, where being American and being Christian and Christian holidays and, Christian th- and sort of Christian culture and Christian tradition, being a part of sort of everything everywhere, that world is disappearing uh, in many ways. The culture is becoming much more secular. And, you, and so that's why you start seeing some of these battles that seem so silly can you put the nativity scene on the post office lawn or on Bill Anderson's lawn right next to the post office? Why are they fighting that? Because when the nativity scene is moved, it's saying we are not a Christian country, right? Um, And you sort of feel it, and I won't lie, it's a lot easier to get people to be religious in a country where state, culture, family, tradition, everything everywhere promotes that religion if you're in a secular world, now suddenly you've you got to pitch people on it, right? So they feel there's this sense, there's this anxiety among a lot of Christians that uh, things are slipping away. And there's a few things that have done this, and I'll give you a list of some of the things that I think have done a lot to kind of hack out the pillars uh, that were seen as supporting traditional Christianity in America. Um, one of the first ones I think of is respect for authority. You know, you hear people say that. Oh, in the good old days, we respected authority. We didn't talk back to our elders. When my dad said jump, I'd jump, and if I didn't, I'd get whipped until I had a blister, and I liked it, because it taught me respect for authority, right? Well, we had respect for authority. Then Vietnam came, and then people started saying, well, look what the authorities, they got us into this horrible war. Then, of course, you get the clergy sex abuse crisis. Oh, all those kids who were taught to respect authority and authority abused them. Maybe if authority was more transparent, more accountable, more easily criticized, so then authority started getting weakened to the point where a lot of us sort of are suspicious of any authority, right? Well, then what else happened in the 60s? Sexual revolution, right? We went from at least the pretense of everyone being a virgin until they were married and being monogamous until they died. Um, we all know that wasn't reality, but maybe more than now. But anyways, that was, the, that was the predominant cultural norm and expectation, right? And then the church had its place in being the marriage. The church was that linchpin, right? Um, right in the middle between your, your chaste life and your married life, and the church had that marriage. It was all important. Um, then along comes the sexual revolution and says, eh, Maybe marriage is oppressive, or maybe it's optional, or let's just do what makes us feel good, and what was that song, whatever gets you through the night, it's all right, it's all right, right? So this is what's happening. Culture's moving away. So, okay, so we've lost the sexual revolution, we've lost respect for authority. Now you start getting moral relativism, deconstructionists coming along, saying, well, you have your values, and they have your values, and whatever is a value to you is a true value. There maybe really isn't truth. Oh, my gosh, now there's not truth. You know, we've deconstructed it, we've got relative moral relativism. Then you throw in some biblical criticism. Some scholars going through the Bible going, oh, this part contradicts that one, and that one's not the same. And, and you know, uh, well, then we actually, we got a scientific thing that shows that the world wasn't made in six days, and, and you really don't believe in stoning, do you? And so then the authority of the Bible now is felt like it's under attack. And then of course the latest one which was gay marriage lgbtq you know and that one became such a flashpoint i think because it was perceived as many as sort of the last straw in a long line of ways in which the traditional pillars of church culture and tradition got knocked out if if, if that one if if you can you can have gay marriage then you can have anything well what has happened as a response to that. Fundamentalism is a response, whether here in America or somewhere else in the world, to these sort of secularism, relativism, questioning of authority that's happening. Um, And it's a reaction against it. Rather than seeing this new world as a world we can adapt to and figure out a new way to change, to uh, spread our message in this world, the reaction is, forget that world, we're going to double down, we're going to double down on law, we are going to have order, structure, tradition, authority, we may not have it in the state, we can have it in our homes, we can have it in our churches, we can have it in our own little, um, we'll set up our private schools, we'll create our own sort of mini culture within the culture that that has these old rules that we used to have back in whenever, right, and um, it's, it's, a, it's a sort of a law response, right? In a world where everything is criticism of law and tradition, we are going to build a place with tradition. Now, what's been, what, what, what we found is, interestingly, if you are in one of those churches that tends to be fairly legalistic and have its laws and its rules and such, um, it forms you, and on the whole, People who grow up in that tradition tend to stay religious longer than people who grow up in more liberal traditions. Why? I think it's just because they don't. liberal Christians don't tend to be as good at having the kind of consistent uh, structure that forms you. On the other hand, the structure, a lot of people grow up, and then they sort of wake up and go, wait, really, you believe that we're, Earth is 6,000 years old? And then they leave, right? Um, the Internet's full of that. But that's what you have in fundamentalism. A doubling down on structure, law, tradition, authority. What is Jesus dealing with when he runs into these Pharisees who are getting all worked up about extra grain? I mean, the Pharisees—they don't aren't plucking extra grain. These guys got enough money to buy bread. Why are they all? Why do they care if Jesus and his disciples are plucking extra grain that's legally entitled to the poor, anyways? Because. If Jesus starts making exceptions to this rule and an exception to that rule and an exception to that rule, uh, next thing you know, the slippery slope, we're going to go down the slippery slope and then there's no rules and it's chaos. And what's going to be, how do we teach the kids to follow the rules that form them if they're watching adults finding endless exceptions to them? Um, And so they're they're a reaction against him. Uh, and um, they're sort of responding back and what I think you have in a lot of American religion today uh, is this sort of reaction uh, this legalistic fundamentalistic reaction against modernity against social change against the uh, cultural change and the sexual revolution and you see it happening in some you see it bubbling up in some very ugly ways not everywhere but uh, give you an, a, another example. Uh, you know what does a church do? If you're one of these churches that teaches uh, sort of absolute sexual purity? You must be a virgin, you must be chaste completely until your wedding night, period end of story. What do you do when one of the teenagers in your church comes up and says she's pregnant? What do you do? She's clearly already violated your law. It's already broken. There she is. The kid's already here, right? Well, what do you do? Well, some churches react differently. You know, some will be like, well, it sucks. I don't think it's a great choice, but let's figure out what we can do. I've heard other stories where, you know, a young woman will sit down and the pastor will just flat out go, you know, you're going to hell. You're a sinner and you're going to hell. Wow. Well, what do you think she does? Oh yeah, I better come back to church this Sunday. No, screw you, screw religion, screw church. I'm out of here. I'm done. You're all a bunch of, you're all judgmental and uh, you know, hateful, I'm out. Why, you know, and I just want to look at some of those pastors who say that, I'm like, what do you think she's going to do? Do you think that by, you know, by giving her this lecture about what a sinner she is, do you, do do you think that's going to get her to go, oh yeah, you're right, um, I'll change my, you know, I'll get rid of the baby and come back to church for you, you know, what, what do you think she's going to do? She's going to respond the opposite, but when the pastor is saying that, he's not really talking to her, you have to remember. He's talking to everybody else in his congregation. Because if he preaches this every week, and then somebody breaks it, and he doesn't clamp down, he's going light on the law and light on sin, and he who could be accused of getting involved in moral relativism, right? He doesn't want to do that. He has to He has to hold down that line, right? Right? Um, You know, you also, the other situation you see a lot. Kid comes out of the closet, goes to one of these really conservative churches, comes out of the closet, Mom and Dad, I'm gay. Well, now the parents, now you're stuck. What do you do? Do you, look, do do you say, all right, that's okay, you're still my son? Or do you, or, but do you say, you know what, no. You're going to hell, pray it away, convert it away. What are you going to do? Well, you don't want to look like you're becoming a moral relativist. You've built your whole, the order and the structure is seen as protecting you from this big, bad, relativistic, anarchic world, and now that world has come right into your family and your house. What do you do? And some will say, uh, thankfully, maybe I need to rethink things. Maybe I can still be a Jesus follower and not have to uh, hate my son. Um, I heard of another person who flat out said his parents just took him and locked him in a closet and beat him till he wouldn't be gay anymore. Um, surprise, he's an atheist. Shocking, right? Um, Why would they do something so hurtful to their son? Because that fear of the law, of the structure, of the order disappearing, they can't handle it. Um, And, you know, I just always kind of want to say to sometimes, if your faith is that fragile, I mean, do you really view your faith like it's some sort of Waterford crystal glass? and secularism is just giant boulders and you know the slightest contact will shatter it to bits is your faith really that brittle and that 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 fragile that a little bit of change and updating here and there to try to be more compassionate or you know to try to be open to new scientific discoveries if those little changes are they that threatening to you that your whole you think the god who made the universe is going to what not be god anymore because you changed some one of these laws Um, you know, uh, you know, but you realize that if your whole faith is built on, this is the one thing that protects me from all that. When you have that view, it's hard to change that view. It's hard to adjust that view. Um, all right. So where does Jesus come in with this? Where does Jesus come in with this? And where do, where does, where like I come in with this? You know, I can see the value Uh, of having some order and structure. In some ways I think we don't do it as well uh, in mainline churches. You know, we don't know how to articulate our faith in a simple way and give people simple practices to follow. And And we try. You know, we give out devotional books, and we've tried discipleship manuals. The problem is they don't tend to carry, they don't carry any authority. It's completely optional, right? You do the devotion if you want. Some people will, and they will reap a big benefit from it. A lot of people, you know, life is pushing on you, pulling on you. Um, and, you know, I, in some ways I think that's a little, bit of a, weak, a, a little bit of a weakness that maybe we don't form well. But honestly, right now, that's a weakness. That, that I'm willing to brave that danger. I'm willing to take that risk. If it means providing a safe haven for those who've been burned by the sort of reactionary legalism. Um, and I go back to Jesus, and I see this kind of legalism, I see this rigid stuff, and I understand psychologically the appeal of it. Um, You know, I at times have thought that and, you know, dabbled in that kind of understanding um, and had a faith that kind of leaned that way, you know, that looked at the world, you know, going through college and seeing some real debauchery going on and going, you know, this can't be it. seeing the appeal of then getting involved in a group that had that kind of order and structure. Um, Of course, that works until you see that the order and the structure within the group makes them miserable and repressed and do weird things. Um, But, right, uh, I look at that and I go, well, let's take a look at Jesus again, right? Let's take a look at Jesus again. Jesus didn't get rid of the law, but he clearly twisted it and bended it and reinterpreted it and reformed it to make lots and lots of exceptions to it. Uh, And he didn't seem terribly worried that making exceptions would send him down a slippery slope, right? You know, Jesus wasn't worried, well, if they start picking grain on the Sabbath, they'll be picking everything on the Sabbath. He didn't seem to engage in that. Um, And so that's why I always say, you know, to those who have been burned, again, by fundamentalist religion, just go back and look at Jesus, Um, you know, the, the, the system, the structure you've been raised in is probably a little bit oppressive because it's a reaction. It's a reaction based largely out of fear, right? Fear of what could happen. And fear-based religion is not really Jesus, right? That's what it says. Perfect love knows no fear, it says in 1 John. You know, love casts out fear. So if, if love casts out fear, why are you always so afraid? Right, why, why, why are you so afraid? Jesus wasn't afraid. Um, and so I go back to this and go, you know, I look at Jesus and I'm kind of inspired, I get inspired by the way in which he could, without any fear and with such a, a solid faith, be able to criticize systems and structures and laws and be able to take the laws that he loved uh, and the tradition that he loved and be able to make exceptions for people, particularly people who are poor, hungry, outcast, um, and, and be able to see that and go, you know, that's really the religion that I want to be a part of, uh, this prophetic, much more prophetic kind of Jesus, right? Where, yeah, we have our, we have our practices, they form us, but the practices are not intend to, intended to oppress us. And when they start becoming oppressive, then we're missing the whole point that God's point is to free people from oppression, right? Jesus sits down, unrolls the Torah scroll. You know, what does he say? You know, I'm here to release the captives, among other things. He reads from Isaiah, I'm here to release the captives, free the prisoners, you know, rescue the oppressed. That's Jesus's mission statement. It wasn't, you know, the world's becoming relativistic. I'm here to enforce the law and get people back respecting authority again. Um, That isn't Jesus. Um, And so... Again, I hope you can be able to rediscover uh, the Jesus who's the prophet uh, and see in him somebody very different from the very wrathful, legalistic, punitive, rigid kind of view that's being projected out there. Um, And of course, I won't lie, I'll give you the pitch, come check us out at Lord of Grace because I think you will find that Jesus here. At least you'll find that, well, that's what comes out of the pulpit right? That's what I can do. So uh, thanks for listening in, everyone. Thanks for taking the time out of your day. Uh, I'll be back again next week. I don't know. Uh, I'll carry along with this. I'm hoping to get a little bit more topical and maybe a little bit less digging into Bible, but I'd always like to have good background and context, uh, set a good foundation. That stuff, I think that stuff is important um, so that you know it's not just Lars's opinion about religion, but that I really am coming at this from spending a lot of time digging really deep and painstakingly into scripture, uh, and not just throwing the scripture out to keep up with the times, but really rediscovering it and saying, what really is Jesus's way? I don't get it perfectly, but I try. So anyways, um, thanks for listening in, everyone. I'll see you all next week. Uh, We'll be back in the sanctuary, and um, uh, you guys have a great weekend. God bless.